All right, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin as we continue through the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians uh, over communion and what he has seen in the church with them. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are being judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The word of the Lord. There are a few things that I hate more in life than automobile maintenance. Maybe you're the same way as I, right? You spend this inordinate amount of money on a vehicle and you think, well, I spent all this money on the vehicle. It should be self-sustaining, right? But no, our vehicles do follow the second law of thermodynamics. And one of the things I hate about automobile maintenance is tires, I hate tires, right? You spend money on tires and it says 60,000 miles, you know, warranty or 50,000 miles, uh, but they never last that long, right? At least they don't for me. I'll look at the tires and I'll notice something seems to be wrong. It's like one side of the tire is wearing unequally with the other. And it, it's like just a, a second before they were brand new and they had all those little things sticking out the side. And you're like, this is a brand new tire and it's worn down. Well, we all know what's happened, right? It's gotten out of alignment. Somewhere along the journey, either through a cataclysmic collision with a curb or just the potholes hitting over time, the alignment of the vehicle has, uh, of the tires has gotten out of alignment with the chassis. And as a result, as you're driving along straight, your tires are actually driving along just at a little bit of an angle to straight. And what it does is it wears it down imperceptibly and slowly, but certainly 
with measurable results. I think about the concept of alignment, and I think about my Christian walk. You know, sometimes my actions are not lining up with my heart. There seems to be a a constant pulling. It's imperceptible. I don't know when it started. I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I want to love him. I want to follow him. But my actions start to skew just a little bit, just in a small way. And over a constant wear and tear, I discover consequences in my life and in my relationships. God has rebirthed us in Jesus Christ. We are a new creation with a new calling to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we have the Holy Spirit who aligns our heart with Christ. I am in Christ, and I also am in Virginia Beach. And so it is with the Corinthians. They are in Christ, and they're also in Corinth. And it is the culture that they live in that is pulling them out of alignment with who Christ is calling them to be. And it's showing at the communion table of all places. For it's at the communion table where they should be most unified that they are not thinking of the needs of their brother and sister. And Paul is saying that you need to reconnect with the gospel through the instrument of communion. That treated rightly, communion is a gift that helps to realign us with Jesus Christ and who he is calling us to be. The culture drives us to be self-centered and self-focused, but communion reconnects us with the heart of Christ, who leads us to be an other-focused person, both toward God and toward my neighbor. The meaning of this sermon, the point of it is really quite simple, that it is Jesus who gives us the freedom to renounce our selfish hearts and to love those around us who are very different than us. So let us use communion as a means for recalibrating ourselves to the heart of God. We're going to look at three specific areas. Number one, we're going to look at the wrongdoing. What are the Corinthians doing wrong? What's Paul so upset about? Number two, we're going to look at the example of Christ in communion. And finally, we're going to look at the solution, how to recalibrate ourselves to the heart of God. So point number one, the wrongdoing. Paul speaks to the Corinthians in verse 17. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. The Corinthians are gathering as a church. And most likely, they're gathering in somebody's home. Somebody, at least maybe one of the more wealthy members of the congregation that have a a big enough home for everyone to gather. But when they gather for being edified, it's actually, Paul saying, not for the better, but for the worse. That rather than them being edified by coming together as a church, they're being torn down. And the reason is there are divisions in the congregation. Paul goes so far as to say in verse 20 that when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The problem is specifically being manifested during communion. 
See, they think that they are having the Lord's Supper, but Paul is saying, no, it's actually not the Lord's Supper that you're eating, even though you think you are doing so. And what is the problem? For in eating, verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One gets hungry, another gets drunk. See, we need to understand a couple things. The first is that when they did the Lord's Supper back in the ancient church, it was a little different than ours. Remember that the original Last Supper was a supper. It was a meal. And the way that uh, Christ did the Last Supper in the beginning, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And then they ate the meal and then he took the cup afterwards. It was part of the Passover process. So we've kind of streamlined it, right? That we, we do the front and the back, the bread and the wine, but we no longer do the meal because of time constraints, size constraints, and so on. But back then, they would do the bread, they would do the meal, and then they would do the wine. Now, no one could feed everyone. The bread and the wine for communion were most likely supplied by the church or a wealthy member of the congregation, but everybody brought their basket dinner, if you will. In the ancient world, sharing was not the norm. There was no such thing as a potluck where the church came together. Everybody brought what they had, and they ate what they had. And the problem is, when they are coming together for this communion meal, they're dividing, the church is dividing into two groups, the haves and the have-nots. The rich are eating together and feasting during the meal portion of communion, but the poor have very little for their meal. And so the rich are actually going overboard and eating and feasting while the poor are watching and hungry. Now, why are they doing this? Can't they see how terrible this is? We need to understand the culture that they lived in. In that culture, it was very, very normal to have class prejudices between the wealthy and the poor. In fact, contempt for the poor was typical of the wealthier class. And the rich were used to having servants stand around and watch while they ate. They thought nothing of it. But it shows how they viewed their poor brothers more like servants, even more like objects. See, they were captivated by their culture. This was the world that they lived in. And they were in Christ, but they were also in Corinth. In fact, some of the privileged Corinthian Christians most likely did not want these advantages to vanish. Notice in verse 19, for there must be factions among you, Paul says, in order that those among you who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul is speaking tongue-in-cheek here. This word genuine, really he's talking about the elite or the wealthy. That the rich are insisting on division. So the people, the poor, could recognize that they are this. In other words, just because we're in church doesn't mean that our culture and our society is to be changed, even though that's exactly what church means. There are some that are refusing to check their status at the door. In verse 22, Paul says, what? Don't you have houses to eat or drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
See, the poor didn't have kitchens to eat in. Their homes were so small. They might have a little portable type grill they could pull out, but a lot of them, they worked and got enough money and they actually, their version of fast food went somewhere and got something to eat. While the rich had kitchens, they had the ability to have meals in their house. And so the rich are bringing their meal with no thought of others. Paul says in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul is not saying, hey, if you want to eat a lot and you're rich to stay at home. Rather, he's saying, if you're going to be this way, don't even come because you are humiliating the church. You're bringing judgment on the church with your flagrant abuse of the Lord's Supper. See, why is this so bad? Why is Paul so upset? Because what the church is doing is repudiating what communion is supposed to be. Communion is many, many things, but here are two critical aspects of communion. The first is communion is an opportunity to express the union of the church. Remember, it's Christ who called these 12 different disciples to each other, and he loved them. And when you look at these 12 disciples, they were quite the motley crew, weren't they? You had on one hand a zealot who was dedicated to the overthrow uh, of the Roman government, and then you had a tax collector, a Jew who had sold out to the Roman government. You had fishermen, you had all these different types of people. But Christ brought them together and he made them his family. Ephesians 4.4 4 talks about the church like this, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus has come to create a new family, the family of God, which is one body. All of humanity can be characterized by the word fragmentation. That's the effects of sin on the children of Adam, on the human race. That from the beginning when mankind sinned, the immediate effect of that was division and separation and war and enmity and strife. But Jesus has come to fix all of that, to restore and resurrect that which was meant to be. One people, all united, manifesting the character of God, who is three in one. Galatians 3.27 puts it this way, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. What this passage is saying is that Christ has broken down the distinctions and qualifications as regards your fitness for entrance into the family of God. Communion is, number one, an opportunity to express the union of the church. And number two, it's a fellowship of God's people. The word fellowship is the word koinonia, which means sharing in common. 
The word the synonym for koinonia is the word communion, the communion of the saints. And it's communion, the, the service of communion, which we'll be doing in a little bit, for that reason is always done in the community of faith. In a little while, I will say some words over the communion, and I will uh, uh, do what's called fencing the table, which means communicating that the table is only for the people of God. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been baptized in the church, it is a sign, it's because it's a, it's a table where the family comes together. A foreshadowing of the ultimate banquet meal in the kingdom of God. It's designed to draw us together in koinonia as we partake of one loaf and one cup, one body and one blood. And so the practice of the Corinthians is doing the exact opposite of what communion was designed for. It's not an expression of union in the church, but rather that of division. And that's not the way a family treats each other. Can you imagine sitting around the table, uh, you know, a family meal, and everybody brings their plate to the table, and there's several of your brothers and sisters that don't have anything on their plate. And you don't say anything about it. You just start to eat, right? No, you'd never do that. You would see that something is wrong, and you would go ahead and fix it and make it right. This was what Jesus was all about. But the culture of the Corinthians is trumping their communion as a body. And it's hurting their body, hurting the body, and it's hurting their witness. Now, what does this have to do with us? How do we apply it to our specific context? We don't do this specifically, right? We don't have meals, uh, sit-down meals in church. And we don't have the same mindset as back then, right? America is a much more egalitarian society. We don't have the same pressure to uphold class distinctions. So the question is, does it apply to us? And the answer is yes. For when our culture is pushing us to repudiate in our actions Christ called a unity and oneness, we must say that it is. And where is the culture pressing on the church? The culture is pressing on the church to get us to see church as something we do rather than someone that we are. See, we can look at church as my personal vehicle for my spiritual transformation. I'm coming to church and I'm treating church as if it's all about me. Yes, there are other people and they're along for the ride and they can help me in my spiritual growth as long as they don't bother me too much. See, but Jesus is saying that the church is not simply meant for me. It's meant for we. The church is the very place where I learn to see others, to care for others, to sacrifice for others. 
We have a mentality that divorces church for community. But church is supposed to be the very embodiment of community. I recently have uh, started getting a tennis elbow, but I've actually started getting tennis elbow in my opposite elbow. I'm a right-handed person. I've played tennis all my life. There's no way I get tennis elbow anymore. Well, why am I getting tennis elbow in my opposite arm? And I've been trying and working on this two-handed volley in my pickleball. That's why. And as a result, I'm kind of straining my arm. That's what happens with tennis elbow. You're straining the tendons in your arm. Now, my right arm, that's extremely strong, that's played tennis all of its life, can say, that's my left arm. What do I have to do with that? But that's not the way our body works, right? When one part of the body is hurting or affected, it affects all of the body. And so what do I do? I go to the store and my right arm pulls out my wallet and buys one of those braces so that my left arm can be taken care of. My body has the mentality for all of my members that we are in this together. Do we have the same mentality? If you are a Christian... And God has called you to this church. We have been united with one another for a reason and for a purpose. Isn't that part of the reason why we're called church members? Being a member is not a mistake. God has brought you here. And we have a supernatural bond in Jesus Christ. And the reason God has brought us together is because we need one another. And furthermore, this is God's laboratory where we learn to love and to be loved. And in doing so, we become a megaphone that proclaims to the world that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. God calls us to have the same attitude that we have with our bodies as with our church body. In our world, we live in a cancel culture. You don't like someone, you just write them off. Or we're tempted because of our life situation to have the mentality. You know, I don't know how our military people do it. They come for a couple of years and then they leave. And it's so easy to have the mentality, why invest? Why pour my heart? Why link up with someone? I'm going to be gone soon. Or our culture treat, uh, tells us to look at church like a consumer looks at a product. Church hop, right? I like the worship over there, but I really like the preaching here, and so I'm going to go here, and, you know, it's like an ecclesiastical pub crawl. (laughs) Or to have the spirit of a Sunday Christian. I'll come, I'll hear the message, and then I've got my fill, and off I go until next Sunday. But you see, if any of those things is my mentality, I've missed it. God calls us to come together and to share our resources. Not in the case of the Corinthians, their meal, their food, though it may be that as well. But my heart and my life. Because the opposite of love is not hate. 
It's indifference. It is Jesus who gives us the freedom to renounce our selfish hearts and to love those who are very different than us. Well, that's the problem. That's what's going on in the church. And so Paul turns to the solution, and that is Christ's example. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. Paul is saying, I've delivered this to you, that you were told this. Paul is not expanding on a theological treatise about all that communion entails. But rather, he's seeking to contrast the attitude of Jesus to the Corinthians. He said that the Lord Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul, uh, Jesus did not keep the bread of his life to himself, but he distributed it equally to all of his disciples. And the bread was his very body, not just his resources, but his very self, which he gave away in order to bring life and joy to his church. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In doing this, Paul, uh, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant that had been spoken of throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will know me, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus is showing in the cup what he is about to do on the cross. When a covenant was put into place, it was always ratified with blood. Blood was the picture, if you will, of the consequences of what one would suffer if they refused to uphold their part of the deal. Jesus' blood is the payment, the activator, the guarantee of all of the gifts and blessings that God has promised to give to his people. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. This is the third purpose of communion, to remember the sacrifice, to never lose sight, but rather to remember and to embrace all of the benefits that it brings. Forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ, new love from God and for God, and a new family, that I belong to a new family, that I belong to a new community and will always be belonging for the rest of my life. You know, a sacrament is a symbol of a covenant. We talk about a sacrament being a sign and a seal. This is an example of a sacrament. It's a sign and a seal of a covenant, my covenant to be married to my wife. It's a sign for me and for everyone else that I am uh, united to my wife. But it's also a seal. It's not something that you are to take on and off. I haven't taken off my, commu- my, my wedding ring for decades. I can't remember the last time. 
It seals me. And in the same way, that's what communion is doing. Paul continues in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the fourth purpose of communion, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does it mean to proclaim? It means to proclaim who he is, what he stands for, and who I am in him. To proclaim him as the Lord and Savior, the only one who can save, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord's Supper is founded on the sacrificial death of Jesus for others. The attitude that led him to obediently give his life away for his people. And that same attitude should pervade the supper forever after. See, that death in Paul's view stands diametrically opposed to the claims of the social status that were at work in the Corinthian community. That's why he's saying that it isn't the Lord's Supper. They have somehow divorced the sacrament from the Savior. It's become a ritual devoid of meaning, not penetrating to the heart. I don't know if you've heard much about the stories of the building of the Taj Mahal. There are many legends about why it was built, and they all fascinate, but there's one that kind of haunts and it's about a, a, a mogul, the, uh, the Shah Jahan, whose wife died. And Shah Jahan loved his wife, and he wanted to create a memorial to remember her and to communicate how much he loved her. And so he had this giant plot of land, and he took her coffin, and he put it in the center, and they began building the Taj Mahal. But something happened as the construction of the temple began. No expense would be spared for this magnificent temple. But as the weeks turned into months and years, the Shah's grief was eclipsed by his passion for the building project. And he no longer mourned her death. He focused on the construction of the temple and was consumed by it. And one day, when he was walking through one of the halls, he bumped up against this box and was frustrated that it was in the way and so commanded to his workers to throw it out. It, of course, was the coffin of his wife. You know, it's easy to come to church and to see the temple, but to forget the one who the temple is for. Maybe you grew up in church and went to Sunday school and you know all of the songs. But now you're busy and there's a lot going on. And I still go, but the church is more like a checkbox, right? One to go ahead and put it down. But you've lost sight of him. You can come to the service and go through the motions. Maybe even take communion. A little wine, a little juice, but forget who this is all about. See, we must stop. We must remember who he is and what he's done. 
and what he promises to be for us. Remember when you first met him? If you have met him. Remember the intimacy, the joy, looking forward to communing with the Lord and learning about him and his love for you in prayer. Really two types of people that come to church. Those whose eyes are kind of glazed over, who are going through the motions, and those who are looking for the Savior. See, Jesus can only be seen through eyes of faith. But you can tell those who are expectantly looking for an encounter with the king in his word, in the worship, and at the table. So if you're looking for Jesus Christ today, look to the table. He is spiritually present in his word and in the cup and in the bread. So come thirsty, come hungry, come expectant. Come with a heart to God that says, I need you and your grace. I need to be told who I am again and who you are and what you're doing in me. And so we must examine ourselves. This is the final point. Communion is a magnifying glass to my heart. It's an opportunity to pause and to reflect. Paul says in verse 12, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Communion is an opportunity to ask my heart, what is going on with you? To look at the alignment of the tires of my life. Do I really hold Jesus Christ as my savior? Is he really my sustenance? How am I living and does it show my heart? For whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. An unworthy manner means to do something that does not square with the character or nature of something. Like the Corinthians were doing. What does it mean for us? It means is my life diametrically opposed? The way I'm living it to who Christ is and what he was all about. Now we all are imperfect, right? We are being transformed into his likeness. He's made us into a new creation, but we are not there yet. It's not speaking of the general sins that we commit as we walk on this journey. But he is speaking on my heart and my life and my desire. Am I straining ahead, pressing on toward the goal of Christ Jesus? Whoever does not drink in a worthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. The word guilty means liable. Those whose behavior at the supper does not conform to what the death entails effectively shift sides. They leave the Lord's side, leave the Lord's side and align themselves with those who crucified the Lord. They become responsible for his body and his blood. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
And so discerning the body means recognizing the uniqueness that the elements represent. That they represent Christ's death and sacrifice for us. In fact, he goes on to say, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Wow. He's saying to the Corinthians that literally your physical sickness and illness, indeed, some of you have died because of your failure in this area. Now, is that still happening? The answer is, I don't know. You know, in in the church, there are different flows in the way God works. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who sold a parcel of land, but they kept back a piece of it to themselves. And what happened to them? They died right then and there. Now, I have no doubt that there are people that continue to embezzle from the church now in 2023, but they aren't necessarily keeling over right now, are they? God works in different ways in his church with different consequences. But it is very clear that we are dealing with someone very powerful in the Lord's Supper. And it is not to be taken lightly. I don't know if you've heard the story of the Radium Girls. It was a movie. It was a a very famous book. The Radium Girls were these women who were uh, hired by a watch company to paint dials with radium paint and radium paint because it glows in the dark. Well, the problem is radium is poisonous. And even though the management knew this, they neglected to tell these women. In fact, they told them to go ahead and take the tip and to to lick it to make it fine enough so you could go ahead and do the intricate things on the dial. And the results were cataclysmic. Death, horrible uh, uh, illnesses and maladies because they did not discern what it was that they were dealing with. God has called us to apprehend by faith the beauty of Christ in us, that we are new creations in Christ. He has come for our good. But he calls us to examine ourselves. It's a gift to submit to his judgment. Verse 31, for if we are judged, if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. In other words, when we look at ourselves and realign our hearts to Jesus Christ, we can have confidence in the future of what is to come. So we must examine ourselves. So I close with this thought. That it is Jesus who gives us the freedom to renounce our selfish hearts. And to love those around us who are very different than us. Let us today and henceforth use communion as a means for recalibrating ourselves to the heart of Jesus Christ. Who loved us. And gave himself for us. Let's pray. God, thank you. That around that table, Jesus, you demonstrated. What you would do and who you are for us. Our very bread, our very life. The one who gives us new life and sustains us 
on this journey of faith until you come back. Lord, cause us to examine our lives. Are we loving our brother as you call us to love them? Are we loving you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Lord, as we come to the table, give us the courage and the strength and the grace to align our hearts to yours, that we might be entirely yours. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.